For those of you who are visiting or haven't been with us in a while, we have been studying this life, death, and resurrection account of Jesus of Nazareth as recorded by Mark. And uh, you'll remember, those of you who have been here most recently, that Jesus has made his way into the ancient city of Jerusalem, and that has prompted several confrontations between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. And Mark has recorded these in part, I think, to teach us and to remind us both of Jesus' mission as well as his heart for his Father and his heart for his people. Now, the groups have been varied. You'll remember a few weeks back, a couple weeks back, it was the Pharisees and the Herodians who were confronting Jesus, and we talked a little bit about who they were. And then uh, the week after that, it was the Sanhedrin who were confronting Jesus. And I made the point that these groups don't like one another. They have different theological views. They have different agendas for their ministry, and yet they are united in their disdain for the Lord Jesus and their desire to be rid of him. And so today, as we pick back, pick up the story again, we have yet another confrontation with yet another group of religious leaders of that time. And through it, we get to be instructed and reminded of our hope. And so if you're able, I invite you to stand with me this morning as we work our way through this passage, Mark chapter 12. We're in the middle of the chapter, picking up where we left off a couple weeks ago, Mark chapter 12, verse 18 down through verse 27. You can follow along in your Bibles or in the insert found in your bulletin. And Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife. And when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. What exactly happens 
when we die? What will it be like? Boy, those are questions that we would love to have full answers to. As long as man has walked this earth, man has speculated upon those questions. Whether you're a Christian here this morning or not, you've likely thought about that question and you formulated some kind of answer in your mind, whether you're confident of that answer or not. See, for some in our world, death is the realization of oneness with the universe. Millions upon millions have believed this. For others, death is the entrance into some other world to come, a world that is defined in a thousand different ways depending upon who you ask and what their source is. For still others, death is simply the end. Death is the end of existence. This was the belief of the group found in our passage. The group that confronts Jesus on this day with this conundrum for Jesus. I want us to look at two truths to meditate on this morning as we walk through what this passage teaches us this morning. And the first one is this. The resurrection is coming. The Bible says so. The resurrection is coming. The Bible says so. The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. I may not remember a lot from my Sunday school years, but I remember that song. I refrained from singing it to you, but simply quoted it to you. And I remember that song, Jesus Loves Me, as many of you do, and the phrase in that song that says, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. You see, one of the things I want you to see in this passage is that this is a passage through which the Holy Spirit calls us back to the Word of God. Let me explain how the Holy Spirit does that. See, there's another thing I remember from Sunday school growing up, and it was this. I remember all these various groups in Sunday school trying to keep them straight, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, and I remember that the Sadducees were sad, you see. And why were the Sadducees sad, you see? Because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And that's exactly what Jesus is confronted with today. In fact, the Sadducees didn't believe in a lot of things. They did believe in God, but they rejected a host of other things. No resurrection, no angels, no judgment. They just thought, live a good life and enjoy it, and that's it. You see, we might say that the Sadducees were the liberals of the day. They rejected the supernatural. They rejected the ultra-conservative views of the Pharisees. Now, this group that comes to Jesus, yet another religious group that comes to Jesus, this, this view that they hold is not the dominant view 
in Jewish life, in Jesus's day. The Sadducees were a, a very, they were a minority group, and frankly, they were a bit unpopular. But what drove them, these men, to this position was, and this is important, they held only to the authority of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, and they rejected the prophets, they rejected the writings, they rejected the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures, and that's important because Jesus addresses it. So that's the Sadducees, who are sad, you see. And these men come to Jesus with what may have been a dismantling argument in other circles. I mean, I'm thinking they probably tried this out at some point to other people in the Jewish culture as they sought to propagate their views of no resurrection. And they, they use this task, tactic as well in other places. And they come to Jesus seeking to show the absurdity of belief in the resurrection. Now, the substance of their question finds its origins in Deuteronomy 25, and we're not going to turn there, but in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10, there is provision for a Leverite marriage, a Leverite marriage, and the name comes from the Latin word meaning brother-in-law. And you can read the passage later, but let me just explain to you what it is. God had put in his law a requirement that would keep families represented and the names of families represented in the tribes and therefore in the line of covenant blessings. And so the requirement was if you had a brother who died and was already married to perpetuate his name and his lineage, you would take his wife as your own. You would take his family as your own. And that was all fine and dandy, the Sadducees said, until your so-called life to come. Now what you do, Jesus, this man has a ton of wives. Who's Husband, is he in your absurd resurrection life? And Jesus doesn't mince words. He says it twice. And the second time he says it with a bit more force. You are wrong. You are quite wrong. Resurrection is coming. The Bible says so. Now, before we get to kind of the, the specifics of the multiple spouse issue that these men raise up from Deuteronomy chapter 25, I want to focus, as Jesus does, on the fundamental premise of the Sadducees. That is that there is no resurrection. And I want to do that by separating the two reasons that Jesus gives in verse 24 for their error. Look at it with me in verse 24. Now, I want to be careful because these overlap. You can't completely divorce them from one another, but Jesus gives two reasons. What's his first answer? You don't know the scriptures. Guys, study your Bibles. The resurrection is coming. The Bible says so. Now, of course, the Sadducees didn't have the Bibles that you have in your laps. And as I've stated already before, they rejected the prophets. They rejected the writings in the Hebrew Scriptures. And that's why Jesus doesn't take them there. Where does Jesus take them? 
he takes them to the Pentateuch, to the part of the scriptures that they adhere to, that they believe, to Exodus 3, verse 6, verse 26, as far as the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Jesus is saying you ought to believe and know all of the scriptures, but even that part that you know, even that part that you acknowledge as the scriptures, it teaches that the patriarchs are alive. And therefore, the resurrection is coming. You see, he's making the point that when these words were spoken to Moses, all these men were dead, they were gone. And yet they weren't. God speaks about them as if they're alive. Because they are alive. And they will rise again. He says, you are wrong. The resurrection is coming. And for these men who are standing there, Jesus not only spoke this to them, but he's about to show them. I mean, fast forward a week. In a matter of days, this confrontation, it is going to be on the forefront of these men's minds as they start to digest the buzz that Jesus of Nazareth has been spotted in town. That he's not in the grave anymore. But that indeed, he is the resurrection and the life. And all will rise because He will rise. John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 1 Corinthians 15, Christ the firstfruits, then at His coming, all those who belong to Christ. Friends, this was not only a rebuke for the Sadducees of Jesus' day, but this simple truth that I know you know, that the resurrection is coming, this is a balm for our souls. In Jesus, there is life beyond the grave. I know that you know this, but how often do you think about it? How often do you long for it? How does the reality that the resurrection is coming dictate your life and the decisions that you make? See, we are people of hope. 1 Peter 1, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into what? Into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Friends, this matters now. It matters today. The reality, the certainty of the resurrection matters this afternoon. Certainly it matters when loved ones leave us. Certainly it matters when we ourselves stand at death's door. Certainly it matters when there is something better to come. 
when the brokenness of our world is just wearing down upon us, but this also matters in how we live our lives. Paul ends his discussion on the resurrection, that great chapter. Maybe we'll go to it in a few weeks as we celebrate the resurrection together in 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, he ends that chapter on the resurrection with the statement, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. Because of the resurrection, your labor is not in vain. A couple years back, we as men, some of you men in this room, we read a book together called Lifted. It was by a guy named Sam Alberry, which is who is a pastor in the UK. It's a good book, thinking through the implications of the resurrection. And I thought of it this week as I was studying, and I found a quote that, that I wanted to read to you. He says this, the work God entrusted to humanity back in Eden has not been superseded. In fact, the resurrection gives us renewed motivation to do the creation work of developing human societies and stewarding this world. It shows us that this world has a future. The good work we do now in this world will not be lost. It is worth doing. Certainly this world is not as it should be. And Jesus is going to come back and make all things new. But Jesus' work and worth has given us worth and worthwhile work. That's a mouthful, but that's the reality of our lives. Lives lived in light of the resurrection, in light of the certain truth that the Bible says the resurrection is coming. So that's the first thing I want us to think about and wrestle with and digest. And the second truth builds upon the first. Jesus rejects these men, rightly so, for not knowing their Bibles, for not studying the Scriptures. But He also says you don't know the power of God. That power that Paul declares in Ephesians 3 verse 20 that is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. And so the second thing I want us to focus on and learn from this passage is resurrection life is better than you can imagine. Resurrection life is better than you can imagine. Okay, let's finally address that glaring statement in this interaction. This is a passage about resurrection, no doubt. But Jesus teaches us something here very specific about resurrection life. Jesus dismantles the conundrum that the Sadducees put before him in one fell swoop by simply saying, there is no marriage in heaven, period. Now, for some of you in this room, a bit of the anticipated joy of the resurrection, I just kind of let the air out of your balloon. You're like, 
right? Because you have wonderful marriages. I have a wonderful marriage and you want to be in love and you can't imagine living life in glory without your spouse by your spine and I hear you and I'm there with you. And for others in here, you're thinking, nah, that's, that's fine. I think I'll be ready for a break by the time that comes. If you're thinking that way, maybe come talk to one of the elders. That'd be helpful for us. Regardless of what you feel, regardless of what you long for, Jesus says very clearly marriage is not there. And it's not there because resurrection is not merely resuscitation into what was, but it's transformation into something brand new. And it's a bit it's a bit beyond our text and a bit of a tangent, but let me suggest two reasons why marriage is not part of resurrection life. Number one, marriage has earthly purposes. Right? Marriage was never meant to be an end in and of itself, but it's a shadow. It's a pointer of greater realities to come. It is the context that God has given for us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and in part to make disciples. It's the symbol of Christ's love for his church to a watching world and all those things have to do with the here and now. And the second reason is that the centerpiece of the resurrection and resurrection life is not communion with your spouse, it's communion with God. And that's not to say that relationships won't be present. Indeed, they will be present. Indeed, we will be individually known and I have every confidence that our relationships will be wonderful. What it is to say, though, is that you won't need the marriage relationship to be satisfied, to be fulfilled. And just as there will be no suffering, there will be no sin, there will also be no regrets. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 73? Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth I desire none besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And so while the scriptures clearly teach an individual, glorified, individually known existence, it is not existence within marriage as a structure. And so will I know Anna? I will. I will know her, but I'll know her differently and in some sense enjoy her more deeply than I can even now in this world of brokenness, in this world of competing sinful hearts. As the 16th century martyr John Penry penned about his wife before his death, he signed it off from her husband for a season and, he, and her eternal brother. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? I know it is. I know some of you are sitting there, I don't like it. It's impossible to figure out what exactly it's going to look like. But friends, 
let me assure you, because of who God is, we don't need to know it all. We don't have to understand it all. We just have to believe and trust. Resurrection life is going to be greater than you can even imagine. Jesus doesn't tell us a lot here about resurrection life, but but what he does do is he gets us thinking about it. And, and, And in doing that, in getting us thinking about it, he reminds us to trust him. And he reminds us to trust this, to trust the word, to study the scriptures, and trust the powerful, loving father who gave you the scriptures, period. In other words, you don't need to over-speculate. I don't need to over-speculate. Sometimes it's fun to use that Holy Ghost imagination. But be careful. Understand what has been revealed to you and trust Jesus for the rest. Let me give a little more a little more stern of a warning, a little sharper point, because we in the church, we're not very good at this. We're not very good at patience. Do you know what the best-selling evangelical book of the last decade is? The 17th best-selling book ever on Amazon.com, selling over 10 million copies. It's a book called Heaven is for real. The story of a four-year-old boy who apparently went to heaven and came back. Not to single this book out, but there are a host of others. 90 minutes in heaven, nine minutes in heaven. The boy who came back from heaven, just to name a few more. Interestingly enough, the boy who came back from heaven has been pulled from shelves because the boy said he made it all up. But we want to know, right? Resurrection life. It's coming. We want to know what it's going to be like. We want to find out. And unfortunately, we often go to these types of stories, stories that have no grounding in the word of God. And at many times, at many points are actually contradictory to the word of God. There's only four men in the whole scriptures who receive visions of heaven. None of them go there. They simply get a glimpse. And they're canonized. And yet we're going to a four-year-old boy. The other place we sometimes go is our own hearts, which is an unreliable source on a number of different things. And these speculations end up being, as one pastor appropriately said, instinct reinforced by sentiment. Brothers and sisters, the resurrection is coming. And the resurrection life is greater than you can imagine. And so simply believe it. Believe the promises of God. 
You don't have to over-imagine. You don't have to over-speculate. You just need to abide. Abide in the one who knows you. Abide in the one who loves you. Abide in the one who paved the way for you. And the one who will one day make your faith sight. Because he is the resurrection. He is the life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the truth that it leads us to for the reminder of what you have given, of what you have revealed to us, which is for us and for our children, and what you have kept hidden from us. Father, make us content with that hiddenness. Give us faith to trust in our loving Heavenly Father who has given us all that we need for life and godliness. And we pray that the resurrection and the hope of the resurrection might indeed change us. That it might give us hope to press on that it might give us optimism about our work, about our future, that our labor is not in vain. Oh, Father, all this has come about because of Jesus, the one who is the lover of our souls, the one who is the resurrection and the life, the one who proved it by his own rising from the dead by the power of your Spirit. Oh, Father, may we be found in him this day. Give us wisdom. Give us discernment in Jesus' name. Amen.